The sermon text this morning is from Psalm chapter 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go, to the, go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, church, we're starting a new series today as Tom's on sabbatical. Um, we'll be having the next nine Sundays will be in the book of Psalms. And the, all the Psalms will be from the sons of Korah. So if you have your Bible out, if, uh, if you look at Psalm 67, you'll see, uh, or Psalm 42, uh, you'll see what's called a superscript. Uh, your, bi- your Bible editors likely put something in there to try to give you a sense of what the Psalm's about. And under there, usually in italics, there's what's called a superscript. That is inspired, and, and yours says, some, uh, says, I actually don't have it written down here, but uh, Psalms of Sons of Korah. Um, and uh, just to orient us in the book of Psalms, let me just give you a, uh, a very brief um, overview of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms uh, in the book of Psalms. So there's one book, and there's 150 psalms in this one book. However, in the book of Psalms, there's five different books. So if you look at Psalm 42, you'll see that this is the beginning of book two um, in the book of Psalms. A fancy way and a shorter way to say the book of Psalms is to say the Psalter. So if I say that, I'm not trying to show off or anything. Now we all know it. We can all show off and say the Psalter. It just comes off a little bit quicker. 42 to 49 are the sons of Korah, and they also uh, are, have written 84, 85, 87, and 88. And I think the groupings are intentional in the book of Psalms. And as, as, as uh, myself, uh, Philip, and Daniel preach through, you'll see that there's, <laughs> Psalm 42 starts out pretty low. And then by the end of Psalm 49, uh, we're praising God in the heavenlies. Uh, the sons of Korah, uh, are, it's interesting that they even have a title and a role because uh, they are the sons of a man named Korah who's most famous for an, actually a rebellion. Uh, he gathered 250 other uh, Israelites and uh, started a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and God uh, punished him for that. 
But uh, we see in First Chronicles 6 and 9, uh, if you're curious who the Korites are, you can go back there later and you can see how they were tasked with um, composing these psalms and leading the congregation in musical worship. But in our psalm today, in Psalm 42, uh, we see the confusing state of a downcast soul. The confusing state of a downcast soul. It's a very personal psalm. Um, not everyone will be able to relate to the emotions of the song right now. Most of us don't come in with the uh, turmoil that the psalmist has. Uh, this psalm isn't one you would think to seek out when you're feeling joyful in your faith or that when your faith is strong. This psalm is especially for those who are in turmoil or distressed or on the verge of despair or perhaps past the point of despair and in a depressed and dark and lonely place. So if that's not you this morning, and probably it's not the majority of us this morning, we're not currently as distressed as a psalmist is, I want to give you some reasons to listen. Okay, I don't want to modify this psalm and, and make it something that it's not. So I want to give you guys some reasons to listen. One, it will prepare you for a season of turmoil. Uh, if you live long enough, you will have deep, dark seasons. So particularly for those who are younger, this prepares you so that you don't sink under the waves of despair. Secondly, um, I hope this comforts some of you who can look back on God's kindness in past seasons of a downcast soul. When your soul was at turmoil within you, you can look back and see God's faithfulness, his covenant love to you in those seasons. And thirdly, uh, my prayer is that this psalm will help us understand and care for those in an inward state of turmoil. Because while I've said the majority of us probably are not in the state, certainly there are some of us here that are in this kind of state. And by the grace of God, you got up this morning and you're here. So here is the point of the sermon. Hope in the God of your salvation when it feels like he has abandoned you or he opposes you. Hope in the God of your salvation when it feels like, when it feels like he has abandoned you or opposes you. Point one, hope in God when it feels like he's abandoned you. And you'd be helped if you had Psalm 42 out with you on your mobile device or uh, uh, in a uh, hard copy of the Bible. Uh, let me say that. <laughs> so weird that you have to even say that sometimes. Like, what does that even mean? I'm just going to say in your Bible. I'll trust you to figure out how to get to your Bible. <laughs> Hope in God when it feels like he's abandoned you. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, the author says he longs for the living God. He wants to experience his fellowship, yet he feels like God is not there. The imagery he gives is a deer panting for water taking deep, quick breaths, looking around for water so that his thirst might be quenched. So like a deer searching for a stream in the desert, so his soul is searching for God. Uh, so I wonder if you've ever watched Animal Planet before. Kids, do you ever watch animal shows? Um, and uh, the good ones will eventually get to Africa and they'll show the Sahara or something like that, and they'll go through the dry season, right? 
and they'll always show elephants or gazelles just kind of wandering in the desert looking for a stream, some kind of oasis. And they're panting and they're on the brink of death and they're weak. They're vulnerable to prey. That's the imagery that's going on here, like an animal panting and longing for water, wandering in the desert, weak, vulnerable because their strength is dried up from a lack of water. This is what the psalmist feels like. His soul is at turmoil within him. He longs for God and yet God doesn't seem to be there. And this longing can happen to anyone. This isn't an indictment on this man for his faith, if you notice that. This can happen to those who are more oriented to being steady and stable, to those who are more oriented to being emotional. Any sort of disposition, this kind of thirst, this kind of feeling that God's absent can happen. This can happen to the best of men. And then in verse 3, instead of meals, he's been eating his tears. Notice the poetic way he's expressing his soul. My tears have been my food day and night. He's so full of sorrow that he can't eat and his meals have been replaced with tears. Psalm 6 says something similar. He says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. Brothers and sisters, can you remember a season of life like this? His anguish is now increased, if you see in the text, by people heckling him. I cry all day long and people say to me all day long, where's your God? So instead of people corralling around him and supporting him, they laugh and say, where's your God? If God was for you, surely he'd come to your aid. If you had a better relationship with him, then you wouldn't be so miserable. If you were stronger in your faith, you wouldn't feel this way. Maybe they're even saying, you know, there must be some sin. I don't know what it is, but there's probably some sin in your life. And I'm going to investigate to find out what that sin is. That's probably why you're in such misery. Oh, brothers and sisters, oftentimes the scripture do relate our own spiritual misery to our sin. But occasionally we come across Psalms like Psalm 42, where there's no obvious cause and effect for this type of anguish. So for instance, Psalm 51, the psalm where David is uh, praying and it's in light of his uh, grievous sin, egregious sin uh, against Bathsheba and Uriah and God. And so he prays in that psalm uh, uh, for the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation, to uphold him with the willing spirit. So he's downcast. He's miserable because he's done some wicked, wicked, wicked. And he hasn't repented. But then you get Psalm 42, and there's just no cause and effect here. And oftentimes when we feel like God is absent, it's in the midst of a hardship, like a cancer diagnosis, a death, a feeling helpless as a parent, feeling lonely and wishing you had more friends, feeling like you were better understood. 
here we're not given any reason. It might be a bunch of those reasons combined. Life's complicated. We don't know. That's the beauty of, of, of this psalm, though. It, it's like, if you're feeling this way, listen to this psalm. But we are told that he wants God, and yet God feels absent from him. He's thirsty. He's crying out for water from the fount- to the fountain of life, yet no water has come to him. He's thirsty, and it hasn't been quenched. And on top of that, like salt to a wound, people... Around him, they taunt him, they heckle him, they misjudge him, they give him bad counsel, and they are acting more like Job's friends than a faithful, understanding friend. Where's your God? Why are you so miserable? And then look at verse 4. He remembers the good old days. It's okay. He's pushing back on his soul a little bit. You see that? He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God and glad shouts and songs of praise. I remember the good old days. I remember your faithfulness to me, God. I remember your love to me. Which makes it all the more confusing sometimes, doesn't it? When we go through seasons like this, I felt the joy of salvation. Now I feel nothing. Where are you, God? So verse five, when he feels like God is absent and withholding from him, He prays. He offers hope. He's talking to his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. All is not lost. He talks to his soul. He fights for the joy of his salvation, which he currently does not feel, but he knows is there because he remembers it. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, commenting on this psalm, he says this, particularly about verse 5. We may hear our hearts say, it's hopeless, but we should argue back. We should say, well, that depends what you were hoping in. Was that the right thing to put so much hope in? Notice how the psalmist analyzes his own hopes. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Notice that he admonishes himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The psalmist is talking to his heart, telling it to go to God, looking to God. Psalmist has a little bit of fight in him. The psalmist is reminding, look at verse five there. He says, the God of your salvation. So just think about what the psalmist could be thinking about. He could be thinking, this is the God, my God, who has saved my people from the slavery of the cruel Egyptians, brought us out to the sea, separated the waters so we didn't get slaughtered by them, upheld the waters and brought us to dry ground. Soul, you feel like this, but you know this. This is the God. As Israelites, as, as, as followers of, of, of Yahweh for centuries have been looking back to God rescuing them from the captivity of the Babylonians. This is a God who miraculously did this, raising up a pagan nation to rescue his own people. This is our God who when we 
were dead in our sins and trespasses, he came here, lived among us, suffered mockery and revilement, and he went to the cross to save us. This is the God of our salvation. So when all else fails, you stand on this rock, brother and sister, he saved you. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Whoever believes them shall not perish. You shall not perish. The waters of the Red Sea will not collapse on you. He will not abandon you, though you feel forgotten and abandoned. And brothers and sisters, we do that even with human relationships, don't we? We think people don't think about us sometimes when they actually do. But the difference between these horizontal relationships and the vertical one is that sometimes people actually do abandon us and forget us. That's not our God. God will never do that. So brothers and sisters, let me just give a couple, uh, two words of encouragement when it comes to helping one another when we're in this state. Um, Well, rather two errors. I try to find a way to make this more positive, but here are two errors that we often do when it comes to helping one another. Um, first error is what I call, come on, move on. So, you know, someone's in a downcast state. Come on, move on. Um, Charles Spurgeon can help us better understand certain forms of a downcast spirit or spiritual depression. He is a man who admittedly himself struggled on and off with bouts of depression. And he gets really specific about it. He says, there are certain forms of disease which so affect the brain and the whole nervous system that depression is a melancholy symptom of the disease. Quite involuntary unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief and yet may become among the most unhappy of men. Because for a time, your body has conquered your soul. And then he has this word for those who are more apt, which I think we all can be, to say, just come on, move on, too quickly. He says, strong-minded people are very apt to be hard upon nervous folk and to speak harshly to people who are very depressed in spirit, saying, really, you ought to rouse yourself out of that state. Uh, We've all done that before. I'm guessing a lot of husbands do that too, just stereotypically. Um, And I'll get to the second point. But there is this real state sometimes of this turmoil, which you can't quite pinpoint the cause, and it's not even helpful to pinpoint the cause, at least in the moment. Spurgeon, again, in this sermon that entitled The Saddest Cry from the Cross, he says, Especially judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Do not hastily say they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. Ask not why, they, why are they so nervous and so absurdly fearful. No, I beseech you, remember that you understand not your fellow man. We are a lot more complicated than uh, we understand each other to be. Church, be careful 
not just to throw someone a label, a strong Christian, weak Christian. Here Spurgeon is, if we use his labels, he's saying he's weak. Life's more complicated than that. We oscillate, don't we? From being strong in our faith to being weak in the faith. Let's not be a church that throws off those who are in the downcast spirit or even those who uh, more routinely get into this kind of state. Lastly, about Spurgeon. He says about his own self, I suppose that some brethren neither have much elevation or depression. I could almost wish to share their peaceful life for I am much tossed up and down and although my joy is greater than the most of men, my depression of spirit is such as few can have an idea of. So I think that's how we need to approach people, at least at first, at least for a season. I don't know all the things that are going on in their heart, but they're downcast now. And they probably don't need marching orders, at least right now. But the second error we do is you're fine where you are. So you have, come on, move on. And then the pendulum swings. You're fine where you are. And this is probably more damaging than even the first. You say, you're fine where you are, says someone when they're sit, sitting in the, you know, the, the, the pond of despondency, the, the miry pit, and it says, hey, you're okay. Just stay there. Let me come down and help you. Let me sit with you. Let me stay there. Well, again, I don't know each situation here. That could be helpful for a season, but it can be really damaging if that's all you say to someone. If you just sit with them, endlessly, and you never offer them the hope, the God of their salvation. So um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure, this is the advice he has for those who are in a downcast state. It's much like the psalmist in Psalm 42, because that's what he's writing about. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment was this. The psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down, soul? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself and say to yourself, Hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him. For the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. In essence, he's saying, preach the gospel to yourself. 
tell yourself about the God of your salvation. For us, church, let's work at making sure that this is a place where Christians can be downcast in spirit for inexplicable reasons and for understandable reasons. If you've never experienced this sort of tumultuous uh, uh, action in your soul, it might be hard to understand, and you could be more quicker to judge someone or to give them some sort of unhelpful advice. You could unwittingly be like Job's friends who, in his suffering, eventually started to tell him he must be doing something wrong. Otherwise, why would God be allowing this to happen or sending these trials? Brothers, this takes grace, charity, over and over again. Because the more we lean in, the more we're likely to mess this up. I have certainly done that in my life. So let's not even, if you're in the downcast state, be too quick to judge those who are trying to help you. Grace will melt away all of the unhelpful pieces of advice that we give one another. Let's be patient with each other. Let's expect that some of us are in a downcast state. And let's point each other to the God of our salvation. Secondly, hope in God when it feels like he opposes you. Look at the second half of the psalm. He says how far he is from God by using places that geographically are far from Jerusalem. So verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. The land of Jordan, Hermon could mean uh, the headwaters of the Jordan River. Mount Mazar could be some mountain that's just far off from Jerusalem. But the point is this. He's far from the temple of God. He's far from the sanctuary of God. He's far from the rich places he's experienced God's closeness and the people of God. He's not near Jerusalem. His soul cast down because whether he's literally far from Jerusalem or he's using these physical places to talk about his soul being far from there, he feels far from God. He longs to be there, but he's in a spiritual desert without an oasis in sight. And then the psalm takes on a new level of angst. It's not just that God's feeling absent, but look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So the pain isn't mere happenstance. There might not be a visible cause and effect, but the psalmist knows, because he's a good theologian, that the tumultuous waters are not from some mysterious source, but they're God's waters poured over his head. In his ebbing and flowing trust, he knows that his suffering is not outside the sphere of God's sovereignty. Now, have you ever swam in the ocean uh, and been hit by a wave? Could kind of knock you down. And then you get up and then you open your eyes before you have a chance to either go under again or go above the wave. It hits you again. <laughs> and then you stand up. It doesn't, I'm like 6'4 now and we go to North Carolina beaches. So it doesn't happen to me anymore. But when I was a kid, <laughs> happened a lot. So that's what the psalmist feels like. As soon as I get a breath, Lord, you're sending another wave. Every time I try to cover God, here it is, another wave. Your breakers are crashing over me. He knows that God's over these waves and God can stop them. And I think he, he knows that God's sending them. And then in verse 8, he shows just what uh, 
is keeping him from drowning from the continuous waves. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You can see him. He's saying, why do you oppose me, God? I know you love me and I know you're with me. But then look at verse nine. You see the turmoil in his soul? Your waves and breakers crash over me. Your steadfast love upholds me. And then verse nine, it's back to, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? <laughs> so I try to make this psalm like in like really crystal clear points, but it's hard because it's a tumultuous tornado-like soul. He goes back and forth. He's oscillating between deep trust in God and also on the verge of despair. Brothers and sisters, have you been in a place like this? He goes about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy in verse 9. And yet he's saying to God, my rock, can't you do anything about this? The weapons of the enemy are eating me away. I can't tolerate this much longer. And they're saying, those who oppose you, God, they're saying, where is your God? And I'm sometimes wondering the same thing. Do you oppose me, God? If you're for me, God, why have you not stepped in against this opposition? Why do you let brothers and sisters all across the globe become persecuted for following you? Do you care about them? Why do I keep getting overlooked for a promotion because of my faith? Lord, do you care about me? Do you care about my family? Are you against me? Why do the attacks from the enemy, these evil darts keep coming my way? I want to live faithfully for you. And yet I feel like there's this thorn in my flesh that I can't quite get out. Are you for me, God? Do you oppose me? What's going on, God? You have the power to do something about it. And yet you're not. This comes in all forms for the Christian. In a more extreme version, I was reading about Christians in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, two months before March, in, uh, in January, uh, in a province, there were at least 69 Christians that were killed by militants. Uh, one day, there were seven believers who were killed on their farms. The following day, in a different village, 40 Christians were murdered, 15 of them being children. Uh, there's attack on March 11th, which killed 22 believers in a different village. And then on top of that, they decided to burn down a hospital and uh, a health clinic as well. So not many of us can relate to that experience, but certainly some of these brothers and sisters, the surviving ones have asked, God, do you oppose me? You can save me but yet you're not intervening against these attacks of the enemy. But what does he do, even the psalmist here? Even though he's being persecuted, maligned, mocked, whatever he might be going through, he says to his soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and 
my God. Well, church, we follow a savior who we have uh, an example of a downcast spirit. He led us. He's, he is our leader. He is our savior. He is the God of our salvation. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. And he is the one who will wipe away every tear one day. Well, we will no, have no thorns in the flesh, no oppression from the enemy. Well, there will be no persecution. Well, there will be vindication for Christians throughout the history of the world. This is our God who saved us. He saved his people from, in the Exodus. He saved them from Babylonian captivity. He saved them from persecution by the Jews. We see in the book of Acts chapter 7 and 8. And then he saved us on the cross where Jesus himself took on the wrath of God for us. Our God is a saving God, even if sometimes it feels like he's slow to save. But we know in the end, God saves his people. Death does not have final victory over us, brothers and sisters. The victory is ours in Christ because he rose from the dead. If you are here and you're an unbeliever and this is new news to you, or this is good news that you've been wrestling with, uh, I encourage you to stare at Jesus in the scriptures. See the way he lived. See the way though he lived a difficult life, yet he never sinned in his suffering. <laughs> we oftentimes do sin when we suffer, even if our suffering is inexplicable. He fully trusted God. I'm gonna close with three applications. One is consider this for the future. Brothers and sisters, prepare for such a time like this. Not in fear, but just in a childlike faith that your God is good, your God is the God of salvation. Prepare now by knowing your word that when times come, you won't be so surprised. Do not be so surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you. You won't be so downcast and your hope will enliven and perhaps a little quicker the more you are prepared. Secondly, look back at the past and see how God has answered this prayer in your life. Have you prayed a version of this before? Hope in God, soul, for I shall again praise him. And where are you today? Are you hoping in God? Is your faith more robust and alive? He's faithful. He answered that prayer. He hears you. Sometimes he just wants us to wait a little longer so that our trust might grow in him and not in the things of this world. And lastly, if you're presently in this state right now, if your soul is so downcast, if you are in turmoil within you, I'm just going to point you to a very specific place. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was on the floor. Jesus was downcast in spirit. Jesus was overwhelmed with grief. And he prayed to his God. He knew that in the end, he would be raised from the dead. Though pain and sorrow came before that, he knew that the father would pour out his wrath for sinners upon him. And yet he kept trusting him. And for Christian, the story never ends, even in death. And our story doesn't end in sorrow or a state of a downcast spirit or with oppression, but it always ends in victory. Victory because Christ did not stay on the cross, or he did not stay in the ground. 
but he rose from the dead. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns. And our story will not be as intense as the sufferings of Christ, but many of us will follow a similar difficult path in this life. But Jesus, what got him through the cross, he knew about the subsequent glories on the other side of the cross to be with his bride forever, the church. We will have trials that are inexplicable and you might be going through those right now and you're so tired of feeling the turmoil within you. But this is not the end for you, Christian. In this life and especially in life to come, you will have victory and you will not be downcast in this state. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We will be raised with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are those of us who desperately need to remember that you love us. We might feel forgotten by you, abandoned by you, and even opposed by you. Oh Lord, cause us to hope in you, the God of our salvation. Lift up the downcast soul. We pray that you'd even use the Lord's Supper to do that. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.